Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Friday, June 17th. I told everybody we would get the coverall. We would record an episode of this podcast every day of the week at some point this season. And I think we are one Friday day on away. the bingo card. <laughs> Friday. If it wasn't covered already, Friday is covered. Saturday, we're coming for you. Not this week, but some point at some point this uh, this season. It's going to happen. Live from the COVID cabana. Woo! Yeah. How are you feeling? Can't take me down. <laughs> uh, tired. Mostly mostly tired. That's been the number one symptom for me. Tired, tired, tired. Also, can't uh, can't like, can't like separate it from the jet lag. So, But uh, we waited. Uh, we waited a week. Uh, and we had, we had actually a COVID cabana. We were out in the pool house, uh, mm. trying to sequester from our family, uh, to keep them from getting it. Unfortunately, that was in vain. They all got it the day we left. So you're like, see you guys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you were those people. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible, terrible house guests. Uh, it could have been worse. Uh, we got it on the last day. So I guess we got it while we were in Hawaii. Uh, we didn't bring it. Um, and we got a regular vacation and then we got a little bonus. Uh, I wouldn't quite call it a vacation. People were like, they're a worse place to be stuck. When you're sick, you're kind of like, it's not like you're like, Ooh, Hawaii, you know, like you're not in the pool. You're not like at the beach. You're kind of, and then you'd rather have all the sort of amenities and your comforts of your own house. So I had, I was much rather that I'd been home. Uh, but, uh. All fair and all's fair in love and war, and we are back. So, I'm glad everyone's feeling better. That's uh, it's really good, and glad you're back. And uh, we got a lot to get to on this episode. We had some questions trickling in about park factors, and those are always tricky when we're talking about even a full season. We've got less than a half season. They're more complicated than usual right now. We'll talk about why. We had a question about trying to use rolling barrel rates, which sounds amazing since barrels can roll, of course. And then we get some questions about Corey Seager and whether or not the Rangers might have some regrets about that long-term contract a few months in. Uh, some other questions about Freddie Freeman and Ryan McMahon, the pursuit of stolen bases, Rangers Suarez, Logan Gilbert, if we have time, we'll cover all of those. And the other factor, of course, wreaking havoc on our schedule. There's construction happening on the building where I live, which is wonderful. And I said this to Al Melkier on the waiver show this week. If I have learned anything in the last three years, it's that I got to be flexible. You just can't, you can't, uh, can't be mad when something out of your control happens. That's just life these days. So serenity. Now, if uh, a loud pounding begins during this podcast and we suddenly stop, it is construction on the windows. It was planned and we're just trying our best to work around it. So that's the boring stuff going on in our lives. Let's try to be fun and entertaining for the next hour or so. Let's start with those park factors. And you have written a lot about the humidor in all 30 ballparks, and that is the complicating factor that while I would ordinarily not really want to look at park factors this early in the season, I actually think there can be some value in it. But the same pitfalls that always apply with very small samples and variables that would happen in a normal year that could cause those park factors to look out of whack in one direction or another, those are still there as well. So how do you separate fact from fiction when it comes to changes in ballparks that we're seeing through the first half of this season? Yeah, we just had a doozy of a little adventure here, just trying to figure this out for pre-show. We were just uh, working through our show notes and what we were going to do. And uh, come along, come along on the adventure with us, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, like, uh, uh, won't you be my neighbor? Um, you know, here's a, here's a fun adventure. So pick, uh, get the ESPN park factors up. Uh, they're very interesting because they do one year park factors, which normally I would say is folly. Um, one year park factors, what you're trying to do, uh, with park factors, the way that most sites do it is you take, uh, say, uh, Brady Anderson and you say, you know, how many homers does Brady Anderson have in Camden Yards and how many homers does Brady Anderson have in other parks? And you, you kind of, and then you weight it by how many uh, plate appearances Brady Anderson has, right? And you do that for all the different players on the team. Um, then you do it for other players that come in and you get an idea of like, oh, it's, you, it's it's uh, 80% uh, 
uh, it's it's 10% or 20% harder here or easier here. And the reason that's folly in one year is you could just have that year that Brady Anderson hit 50 homers and, you know, how many did he hit in Baltimore? Does that Should should that change Baltimore's park factor one year just because Brady Anderson had this crazy year and hit all his homers at, at home? And, um, <clears throat> uh, and so I, I do prefer there's a stat cast uh, a, a, a park factor that – that kind of does what I want. You have to go to the park factors on StatCast and then click on the stadium. So if you click on Bush Stadium and then scroll down, you'll see speed and angle park factors. And that's basically saying, given a certain launch angle and a certain launch vector, uh, you know, do these balls, how do these balls fare? And, um, and so that I like that better, and that could actually I think be useful on a one-year level because um, you're not asking what the name on the back of the jersey is. You know, you're just saying all balls hit at 25 degrees at 105 miles an hour. How do they do in Bush, and how do they do somewhere else? Um, and so I like that. Uh, it probably should be corrected for spray angle, which is horizontal, you know, side pull, that sort of stuff, which I don't think it is. So I, th- I do think there is work left to be done uh, when it comes to stack-ass park factors. But anyway, back to the one-year park factors. Uh, there is noise in them, but this year they're incredibly interesting because, uh, for example, Baltimore's park is now the 26th easiest place to hit a homer. 26th easiest would also be, you know, like fifth most <laughs> difficult, I think, if you're flipping yeah, the other exactly. way around. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Baltimore has gone from being, you know, fifth easiest to like, actually, I think it was probably in the past. Let me see what I can, what I can finagle here. Just last year, uh, 2021, it was first easiest to hit a homer. <laughs> So they changed those walls uh, and they, it was really drastic. It's really crazy. They are now uh, the fifth hardest place to hit Homer. I don't know. I don't know if I believe. What, what do you think? Do you think, like, do you think, what do you think will happen in three years? It'll, it'll sit there the whole time. I mean, I, I, I also think about the personnel on this Baltimore team and I'm like, it's they're not very good batters. No, but this is supposed to generally kind of remove some of that, right? Like you're not. Well, the ESPN one is uh, yes, you are matching home and away. So if if you know if Jorge Mateo can't hit a homer at home, he can't hit a homer on the road. It does it doesn't change the park factor much, right? I I don't think it's necessarily going to play this extreme in the That's long run. That's how I feel. It seems it seems too much. Even when we get a brand new ballpark. Uh, I think uh, Truist Field, or whatever they call the ballpark in Atlanta, when that one first opened, and then we got more years of information, we're like, oh, wait a minute, it's not what we thought in year one. It was crazy home run friendly at first, right? And I think it was for more for lefties than for righties by a pretty big margin, if my memory serves me right. All, all I remember is year one of that park versus the years since, year one looked totally different. It's exactly average now, yeah. I mean, at least by the ESPN one year. Yeah, and even the one year home run park factor that I'm looking at for Savant has it 16th out of 30 for the home run park factor. So yeah. plays in the middle of the road now. That's for hitters on both sides all mashed into one. It's not separated out by, by lefties and righties. But to your point, okay, so yeah, Camden Yards, clearly the changes they made have done something. And it might be something significant, but we shouldn't in June, the middle of June, say, yep, this is what the ballpark is like yet. But that other complicating factor, too, how has the humidor impacted that? How much of this is the dimension changes? How much of this is having a humidor they didn't previously have? I think that makes this even more complicated. It would make me more inclined. So if you're going to try and split the difference and say, all right, it's not the park it used to be. It's the park it is now. It's going to play more like a league average park. I'd push back on that and say, no, I think it's going to be more like the midpoint between average and where it is now. If I had to approximate what I expect to happen because of that extra variable and St. Louis at the other end of this, I mean, what we were looking at before we started recording with St. Louis is really interesting because as you start to look 
into the specs of the humidor and some of the specific examples of where production is coming from for the Cardinals, the puzzle pieces actually make a little bit of sense. It all starts to come into focus. I mean, this is pretty remarkable. Like St. Louis is not a place you expect to see near the top of a home run park factors leaderboard. It's yeah. It's fourth on the ESPN Park Factors page. It's third on the Statcast One Year page. That's way out of bounds. Just as out of bounds, really, as Baltimore is being near the bottom of the list. You know, and so here now we're beginning our really wild ride because this is St. Louis. I, this is nuts. I mean, St. Louis used to be a pitcher's park on the level of San Francisco, which is not off the bottom now in terms of homers. They changed their park dimensions. They're uh, 25th now in, in home run park factor in, in the one year uh, version, but that's that's been happening for a little bit. But St. Louis used to be there. It used to be 25th, 26th, 27th, one of the hardest places to hit a homer. To be fourth in the one year park factor is amazing. So, you know, I said, well, let's let's look at the splits uh, and and let's see, uh, you know, what's going on here, home and away. Because if some if if a the way that I lined it out, like if if somebody just randomly hit a ton of homers at home and had a lot of plate appearances, they would weight the entire park factor. So Paul Goldschmidt has 13 homers at home. It's a lot. He's He has three away? For June 17th, it's a lot of home home runs. He has 13 homers at home and three homers away. He alone is changing this, the traditional park factors. He by himself. Because Nolan Arenado has seven homers at home and four away. But between the two of them, they have more plate appearances at home and away than probably anybody else in the sample. Maybe Tommy Edmond, who himself is not going to change a home run power, uh, park factor. So you could say, all right, well, that's just random. Paul Goldschmidt has uh, 13 homers at home. He's just been on a hot streak. He's, you know, fa- What did you say he faced? A lot of pirates and... Yeah, he's got four home home runs against the Pirates. He's got, uh, they had a series against the Diamondbacks. He homered in that. He homered against the Royals at least once in that series. So there's a little bit of like a strength of schedule thing in play here. But even that is not a complete explanation. And that's the part that I think is so interesting about all of it. You go over to the StatCast speed and angle factors for Bush Stadium, as I outlined earlier. You look at home runs. And it's almost the same as the regular stack, the regular uh, park factor. This park has gone so on home runs. Given the speed, a certain speed and angle, they're thirty percent more likely to be home runs in in uh, Bush than any other stadium right now. And in the past, it's been from eighty to ninety percent. You know what I'm saying? Like ten to you know uh, ten to twenty percent less likely to be a homer. In Bush Stadium. Hmm. That is a wild ass swing, if you ask me, dude. And and yes, we're gonna come back to the the humidor here because the humidor, uh, per my story with uh with Ken Rosenthal and uh per uh, Meredith, Dr. Meredith Will's excellent um uh, breakdown, the humidor is set to a 50 to 53 degree dew point. The average dew point in uh, St. Louis in April is 42. Guess how many home home runs Paul Goldschmidt had in April in St. Louis? I know the answer and I'll play along. One. One. Okay. The dew point in, his, in St. Louis in May, the average is 53. But that means at the beginning, probably... It's a little bit lower than 53, which is right around where the humidor is set. And that means near the end of May, it's going to be over 53, which means the humidor starts removing water from the ball. In June, the dew point in St. Louis is 62 degrees, which means the humidor is now voraciously removing water from the ball when compared to last year. I... I wish I could be like, it's 20% this and 80% this. And I know exactly what's going to happen. I don't, I don't, I, I know that it's some part, it's gotta be some part noise. There's some part is like Paul Goldschmidt just went ham. Sure. 
that's in the data and it's it's a confounding factor in its noise but some part of it is the humidor some part of it is definitely the humidor it's just funny because the if you look at the game log look at his home runs i mean he really started hitting in the middle of may Homer on May 13th, 15th, 17th, 19th, 23rd, 26th, 27th, 28th, 30th, June 3rd, June 14th. He hit three home runs that day because they played a doubleheader with the Pirates. It's almost like as soon as the weather changed and the balls were being dried out by the humidor, he started mashing. Arenado was hitting before that for whatever. I mean, right. so it's not it's not like the whole team started hitting at that time. So that's where I think the this is also just a hot streak is part of the explanation but i'm fully with you i have no sense of 10 percent hot streak 90 percent weather 90 percent weather 10 i i don't i don't know I, I don't know and i think what i've wondered is how actionable is all of this going forward philadelphia is another park that's playing very differently early on this season compared to how it's played in the past does that mean i should be more aggressive streaming pitchers that get opportunities in that rotation should i be trading for guys who are underperforming in that rotation because the ballpark is not as hitter friendly as it's been in the past should i be more willing to stream upper middle average type guys against the phillies if the lineup is missing a few guys and they're at philly because at philly is one of those places the little light bulb in my head goes off when i sit in the schedule yeah, yeah i don't really want to throw a, a mediocre pitcher there Maybe I should make those sorts of adjustments. 19th in home run perfect right now. But 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 Baltimore, to return to Baltimore, uh, the dew point in May was actually uh, a little bit lower than uh, in St. Louis, uh, 51. And, uh, and then in June, uh, it's still a little bit lower than St. Louis, but it's above that, that 53, it's 60. So what if Baltimore gets like, what if Baltimore had a Paul Goldschmidt? Yeah. They got a Ryan Mountcastle. It's not a Paul Goldschmidt, but it's a guy that hits dingers. At least he started to, right? Mm-hmm. He just had a two homer game yesterday. The day before. Usually right around the time I start to throw shade at like, the player. That's about the time he starts to hit. <laughs> but it's also like, uh, you know, like, Baltimore is definitely one of the ones where you're just like, don't throw anyone there. And, the, the, you know, the, the pitching plus model has loved Tyler Wells. And uh, in some places, I had to throw him uh, against Toronto and at Toronto. And I was like, I don't, I don't, you know, in places where I could not, I did not. But in places where I had to, I just sort of chucked and ducked. I was happy, happy with the outcome. I think Tyler Wells, you know, this is a, this is a, this is a seg, this is a off, off topic, but I'm just saying, if Tyler was at home against Toronto, I would have been like, I would have, I might have even dropped him, you know, just to be like, not play that. But then, you know, you look at these numbers, you say, whoa, maybe I should be targeting Baltimore. I, I, I can't believe it, dude. I can't. I think that, I think if you did start targeting Baltimore, you could get in some real trouble in the next couple of months. Targeting seems like reacting a hundred percent to what you're seeing. Exactly right. We're talking about these these percentages, right? but you can't ignore it. That's the problem. Right, right. This is the middle ground. This is gray area. This is nuance. This is this is why the game is fun and challenging, and this is just the unexpected extra challenge that. I mean, maybe experts in in weather and physics were able to more accurately predict what was going to happen, and I was not smart enough to seek them out going into the season. Uh, but I, I think we're going to see some pretty strange twists in these next couple of months. And then we're going to see things change again as the weather cools late in the season. Park's going to change again for the last 30 or 40 games when things start to finally cool off and in September and the beginning of October. So all of I, this I think, is just yeah. it, it's it's almost impossible, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Right. And there's also I think there's some folly in what the league did um, to set this the humidor to one number all season is to create the stagnant level of ball storage around changing temperatures. And it, I think it, it's, it's going to create an almost exacerbated April, August split in the future. I think April's will be more cold offensively than they have been in the past, which they already are cold offensively because batters come out of spring training behind pitchers, right? Hmm. 
We can see that in swing rates. Batters swing less often in April because they're they're still gauging what what pitchers are doing. They're not comfortable with everything, and and and, and pitchers take advantage of it. Offense peaks in August, but offense already peaked in August. Now we're drying the balls out. So we're, I think we're going to see a larger difference between April and August in the future. And that, I think, is something that you could you could uh, kind of try to game. Maybe not this year so much, uh, but next year it may be really interesting to think about, should I maximize innings, especially if you have an innings limit? Should I get as much out of my pitchers as I could early and trade away pitching for hitting? or drop pitchers for hitters become more of a reliever centric strat- strategy for the for the latter part of the season. It's an interesting that's an interesting thing to think about, but I think this year we will find a more drastic August to April split than we'll ever have seen in the past in baseball. The dew point today in St. Louis is 69 degrees. <laughs> what is you well, the other thing we don't know. This is another variable. The way the humidors are set for this year, that's not necessarily the way they're going to be set for next year. The league's going to see this and say, you know what? Yeah, we don't want we don't want that much of a difference all the time. So let's set it by month or let's set it conditionally by market. I mean, there's there's so many ways they can change. There already is a difference. Uh, there is one humidor that's set differently. Not Colorado. It is Colorado. Yeah, because they were the famous original humidor. Yeah, and they and they're set they're set to an even more extreme so to give it more water to to try and help offset the offensive boost that that park provides. So so the door is open, right? Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. this is it's it's fun and challenging and frustrating. It's everything all at once. That's yeah. that's how I feel about it anyway. And yes, I'm interested in let us know how you, you are going to try and take advantage of this or and think about ways that you might take advantage of it in the future because I think it's it's an open conversation at this point. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24/7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's get to some other questions, though, that came in. You know, we talked about some uh, rolling graphs a few weeks back, and Kevin wanted to know uh, if there's actually a way to get rolling barrel rates. Is that something that is possible to grab anywhere and and how valuable could that be uh, yeah I, it is an interesting idea when you talk about rates stabilizing and you talk about a, a stat being useful in small samples and you say oh you know swing rate uh is useful after a month um so what happens if you're three months into the season and in the last month has been drastically different than the first two months uh there's a, there's a question there right? it's like so what do i believe the last month or the full season um, because there's been this change and this is supposedly a stat that stabilizes quickly. I don't have a, I don't have a great answer for that, except that um, I know that, for example, in Pitching Plus, the last 400 pitches are slightly more predictable, predictive than the full season of pitches. Um, and so there are stats where things are slightly more predictive recently and I think it's really reactive stats. So I think that it is an interesting idea. Um, you know, for okay, so for one guy, I think one guy popped on this list. We did uh, a list here where I did a, a query for um, uh, barrels since May first, and uh, I think we can put that up on the screen for YouTube users. Yeah, I can put the URL up and then, yeah, I can actually probably share the screen with the actual list. So let me sneak that on here in just a minute. Maybe we can put something in the show notes. Um, but uh, <clears throat> if you follow this link, uh, you'll get a, a query for um, for barrels over the uh, since May 1st, uh, over the last six weeks or so. And, um, you know, the problem 
one problem is that um, that isn't exactly what I did, is it? I like I how percentage. I tried to share the screen, by the way. This is this is another fun thing about uh, doing things on the fly sometimes is my browser updated and I no longer have permission to share the screen. So I'm trying to, <laughs> while you talk, I'm trying to open up that permission so I can actually share the screen. Uh, well, um, I'm not sure that the uh, one you shared was uh, incredibly correct. Either. That was the one you sent me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, but there's something wrong about it. Um, because if you see the, the total number of results... The, anyway, focus on the first number. Those are barrels. That's right. Um, the second number is wrong. It's all pitches. Um, I did just share a new link with you. I don't know if it's any different, if if uh, something's breaking off of it or whatever. But in case, uh, any any case, uh, we'll get a link to you. And in that link, uh, you will get uh, barrels over balls in play. Uh, and most, uh, most have, m- almost all of these on this list have more than 50 balls in play. Um, and most have over 100. So 50 balls in play, barrel rate is supposed to become uh, stable. Players that you'll see that are different than their fu- full season number, uh, one that really pops off the list uh, is Joey Votto. Uh, who is 29th on this list, uh, right between Af- Raphael Devers and Bryce Harper. Um, and uh, and he's got a 14.3% barrel rate. This is uh, after he dropped the knob off the back, off the side of his, of his bat. We had an email from um, a reader, Ani, uh, who was pointing out that this, you know, this is a different, this is a different Joey Votto. Now we have a piece of narrative that he changed his, equipment uh and then we have a supposedly in like stable statistics that changed put them two together and you think okay this is the joy vado going forward the one with a 14 percent barrel rate um but um you know otherwise the list is uh you know it's stanton and judge as it always is schwarber uh jake berger is fourth on this list uh, and this is over balls in play, so you don't have to deal with his uh, strikeout rate, which is, you know, the the negative when it comes to Jake Berger. But he always hit the ball really hard, and this one of the reasons we've talked about him a lot on this podcast. Uh, Jack Sawinski is a similar type of player to Jake Berger in terms of, um, you know, being excited about his ability to barrel the ball. And uh, wondering just exactly how much contact he'll make. He is 12th on this barrel list, right behind Acuna and Jazz Chisholm, and ahead of Pete Alonso and Jock Peterson. Um, Christian Betancourt is there. Uh, I don't know how much I believe in him as a as a player overall because of contact and defensive questions. I mean, they've tried him at every every position. It seems. I mean, he's pitched. He's played third. He's Cat, he's. I think he's played most season one game at some point. So I, I just somehow, somehow he just feels like he's barely in baseball to me. Uh, I'm a little bit more excited about Swinsky and Berger, but those are names that pop if you look at uh, barrel rates since May first. Um, the only problem with this list, though, is you can't do it over plate appearances, and so you have to do that mental arithmetic to uh, think about strikeout rates because they do matter. Jack Sawinski might be really good in the long run. 31.1% K rate so far, but it's his first first run against big league pitching. And I mean, there's a couple things. He's not swinging a lot of pitches outside the zone, so that bodes well. Doing damage when he connects. And he's in the 86th percentile in sprint speed. So he's got a couple steals already. Might keep getting those green lights. I, I think he's very intriguing. So there might be some, probably some 12 team leagues where he's still out there. I think he's pretty much gone in 15s because he's been playing enough but i would not be surprised if things actually get a bit better for him than the current slash line he's not a 209 272 417 guy with that approach and with the amount of damage he does yeah, and the projections might even be missing something on the batting average side i mean i know he's had some low batting averages in the minor leagues uh, but he's also had some uh some more decent ones if he does hit the ball really hard, he could have better than a 290 BABIP, as a lot of these places are projecting. If he does get that BABIP, he also doesn't have an extreme fly ball tendency. 
So if he gets that Babbitt to like 320 or 330, totally possible with a powerful approach like this, then you've got a guy who can hit 240 or 250 with, I would say, 30 home run type power. Um, so definitely an intriguing guy. Also a kind of guy that there's a fair amount of supply of in modern baseball, it seems. Yeah, and they've got a few other young outfielders, but they're giving them that chance right now. And I think for the Pirates, yeah, I brought this up on the Athletic Baseball show, Brian Reynolds, if he gets traded, that stabilizes mm. playing time for someone like Suwinski quite a bit because it's one spot where they play a guy every single day that they would be moving someone out of. And the sprint speed is really interesting because the projections say that he's not going to be good defensively, but I kind of feel like that's a guess, <laughs> a defensive projection for a guy who hasn't played in the big leagues before. Um, and if he do, does have top sprint speed, that speaks possibly to his ability to to be a, an asset defensively. Uh, by the way, Brian Reynolds, we talked about him maybe a month or so ago as someone that oh, looked man. like he was off to a brutal start. He's turned things back around. The overall really season has. numbers are still like a little behind what we're used to, but he's he's tracking back toward being the player the rest of season projections suggested he'd be the entire time. And he got that strikeout rate under control, although the swing strike rate is still going to be the worst of his career. Yeah, but I think the team situation could could get a lot better. If he ends up on a contending team, maybe a more hitter-friendly ballpark, average isn't going to hurt you, probably going to be good in batting average, more likely than not. So I think some of the, the warts we were seeing for Reynolds, they appear to be less of a concern right now. His barrel rate. He's still down for the changed. season. He's it's, and it's not better in the last. Uh, it's not better in the in the last uh, since May first. That's interesting. He's still uh, he's still not hitting the ball as hard as he used to. He's still not barreling the ball as well as he used to. He's still ma- making less contact than he used to, but uh, he's not striking out as much anymore. And that alone has uh, improved his his overall line. I think. Yeah, so he's definitely righted the ship. The other part of the question that Kevin sent us in, what inspired the question was Rowdy Telez. His stat cast data has looked good. It's pretty much been the same as it's been for his career throughout this season. Rowdy versus Votto versus Christian Walker, I think, was the question back when when Votto was struggling. And I think now that we've seen Votto make the adjustment and get healthy, I think he's the clear preference for us from the group. But Rowdy versus Christian Walker is actually a tougher decision to make if you're in a position where you have to choose between those two guys. Yeah, um, and Rowdy's Rowdy's barrel rate is down a little bit. He's at 11.7% for the season on Fangraphs, um, and since May 1, uh, he's at 8%. But, uh, I don't know, he has the same barrel rate as... Uh, in the last month as Anthony Rizzo, Randy Rosarena, Freddie Freeman, Sean Murphy. Uh, I I think he's still a good player. I just think maybe he's not a great player. Uh, he doesn't play against every lefty. Um, and uh, maybe he's subject to some of the ebbs and flows of which parks he's playing in. Is that possible? Um, that it's not like an every park, no doubter type uh, power set, but he still makes pretty good contact. He still barrels the ball pretty well over overall. He's still a decent player. And the big debate for us, I think we put Votto ahead with this noblest bat now. Big debate for us was Walker versus Telez. And we kind of hemmed and hawed. That one's a very difficult one. Um, there's some evidence that Walker's fly ball rate will lead to a low BABIP, and that's what he has right now. But his fly ball rate is 48%, and Rowdy's is 45%. Is that, a, is that a, like a meaningful difference? Not really, but I do think there are some differences that I didn't necessarily expect to see. I mean, we're seeing Christian Walker strike out just a little bit less, and he's swinging a lot less at pitches outside the zone. So that's kind of a big separator. Rowdy, Rowdy does not ha- have a great eye at the plate. Yeah, and for you know, however much you want to put value on first base defense and how that can impact playing time a little bit, <laughs> Christian Rowdy Walker not. is not a <laughs> Christian Walker's grading as a great defender right now. Rowdy just isn't. We love Rowdy, but that's not his strength. 
uh, to put it very nicely. So I could see the case for Walker over Rowdy. The difference in the two lineups might be enough to kind of swing it back in Rowdy's favor, but that's a much closer toss-up than I would have expected based on the way the season started for both of those players their first 25 games or so. Uh, thanks a lot for that email, Kevin. Uh, Jake wants to know, with Corey Seager's OBP under 300, the average sitting in the 220s, walks are down slightly. He is still hitting for power. He's just curious if we're seeing anything in the batted ball profile that points to a rebound coming to the slash line overall. And he's also wondering if maybe this is uh, just a case of a player in a new environment on a big contract, maybe pressing a little bit. I, I got a, an email question a couple weeks ago. Is this the year he'll finally hit 30? He's got a shot at it. I think he will. I think he will hit 30. I don't know. I just think he's an excellent, excellent hitter who makes a lot of contact, has a great eye at the plate, and barrels the ball well. I think his batting average is a mirage right now. I think it was a great signing. How much do you think he is losing production-wise being someone that does use the opposite field a bit? 29.1% opposite field rate's the highest of his career. You, you wrote about that, that going the other way is not as fruitful as it ordinarily is because of the changes to the ball. Uh, that's interesting. Where are you getting that number from? That's from the StatCast page. Oh. Uh, slightly different from the Fangraphs one. How does that number vary? Highest of his career in uh, on StatCast? Since... It's six, 2016, he was the same, 29.2%. like like 0.1% higher. But that's, yeah, 29.1% opposite field percentage is the highest. Huh. Over on Fangraphs, it's 26.6%. His career average is 27.1%. So it's slightly below. Weird. Interesting. Yeah, so for the career, he's up about two percentage points over his career mark based on the way he's it's He's never been a, a, full, a full pull guy. I can say that. Even on on fan graphs, that's true. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, he's definitely a guy who's trying to hit the ball out of the park. I mean, if you look at his launch angles, and his launch angle is one of the highest it's ever been. His average launch angle. Now, that's a pretty noisy stat. I'm not trying to say, um, trying to make large conclusions off of that, but it is a launch angle of someone who's trying to hit the ball out of the park. Uh, and so that opposite field number you'd want it actually to be lower i guess the the numerical follow-up question the bad x has him at 281 353 502 the rest of the season for seager 17 homers and 100 combined runs and rbis are you in on that projection yeah yeah i'm a i'm a seager believer i have no reason to, to push back on it because yeah. I, I, still, I think the underlying numbers still look very good. The barrel rate is down a tick from where it was. Still double digits, 10.1%, uh, 44.2% in the hard hit rates. That's down kind of in a similar sort of way. I mean, if way. this is pressing, then then watch out when he when he gets comfortable. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. He's a, he's a, he's a, a crazy one in terms of um, uh, what, he, what he's like in the clubhouse and like, around the field and stuff. Uh, he's, he doesn't, I like, I, I've, I've never really talked to him because he never seems available. And the reason why he never seems available, and I'm not saying that I've like asked him for interviews and said no. He's always talking hitting. Anytime I've ever seen him, he's talking hitting. He usually sets his phone up and is talking to his his private instructor. And I know... He works with someone famous. I don't know exactly. It's not off the top of my head who it is. He's on the phone. He'll set the phone up and he'll be doing dry swings and talking to his instructor. I've seen him leave the clubhouse in Oakland and find like a little like niche in the in the like in the bowels of that stadium where he's like trying to like talk to his hitting instructors. So, uh you know, that can be good and bad sometimes when you are the hitting instructor for your team and you're like, hey, can we talk? And he's like, no, sorry, I got to go make a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at the same time, the results have been outstanding uh, and it does speak to a level of dedication. Um, so I'm, I'm sure he's not happy with his batting average and he's uh, currently discussing whatever mechanical aspect of his swing 
that he needs to improve upon. So maybe you know, I think when people hear Tinker, sometimes they say that's bad, that's good. But they hear that profile, they say uncoachable. Uh, I see that profile and think this person's dedicated. This person is working very hard. I would rather have that player. Is there uh, any long-term regret if you're Texas based on what you've seen so far? I mean, it's a pretty big contract, of course. It was a 10-year, $325 million deal that Seager got this winter. At the time, I think I looked at it and said he doesn't strike out a lot. He's got a good approach. The power seems stable. You're not really expecting him to run. You're probably expecting him to play third base or play in the outfield maybe at some point before the end of the contract, but that's not really a problem. And if it weren't for... I think it was a hit-by-pitch last year that cost him some time with a wrist injury. He would have probably been a five-war player again last year, which he was at the very beginning of his career, too. So I I wouldn't panic if I were a Rangers fan or if I were someone in the room that wanted to give him this money. I, I, think, I think he has a hitter's profile that typically ages pretty gracefully. Yeah, he makes a lot of contact, has a great eye at the plate, and hits for power. I mean, yeah. I uh, I think I would have as much as I I said that the Seager uh, I like both signings uh, the, I'd be a little bit more worried about the Simeon signing because he didn't have the same long track record of power. Um, he doesn't play as premium a defensive position, and I know Simeon's come around a little bit recently, and I I do believe in their character, you know, in the same way I believe that Simeon's a very hard worker, but he's also older you know, and doesn't have the same long track record. So you just get a little bit more nervous when the power outs that foot badly. And Seager's power hasn't outed in the same way. So, Yeah, I'm with you there. We had another question come in. This one's about Freddie Freeman. And it goes back to some of the stuff you've written about, about the ball and opposite field approaches maybe being less valued. Should there be an urge to trade Freddie Freeman? If you're in a league where you're desperate for power and you see a lot of the home runs that Freddie Freeman was hitting turning into doubles. Do you try and move him now for an SP one in this particular email? This email came from Andrew. He's wondering if he could should flip Freeman for Carlos Rodon or Zach Wheeler, you know, someone along those lines and sort of trade more based on a great long-term track record and, and, you know, some memories of a very high draft day price anticipating that, Freddie Freeman, while still very good, might not be the same Freddie Freeman we're accustomed to. Furiously checking the dew point in July. <laughs> this is what we've been reduced to. Uh, the the dew point in July in LA is 65. It is 60 in June. Um, there is the chance that, that there's a humidor effect in Los Angeles and that'll get going for him. Um, on the other hand, we do know the ball is deadened uh, generally. And we do know that he is hitting a lot of opposite field fly balls and one of the leaders in opposite field fly balls. And that's been his approach for a long time. Um, and it's the most f- opposite field fly balls of his career. On the other hand, this guy has uh, had multiple different approaches in his career. And do you doubt uh, Freddie Freeman's ability uh, to turn on a ball and hit it out to the pull side? I don't. Not really. The reason, if you were going to say, like, hey, should I trade Freddie Freeman for Vlad Guerrero or something? Is that possible? I mean, you're talking about two first-rounders. Let's see, what, what's Vlad Guerrero's uh, batting average? He says? Yeah, you're probably not getting Vlad for Freddie. No. 270 batting average, more homers. Yeah, you're not no, the the person with Vlad is not making a challenge trade like that. Okay, who's a, who's got homers but not a great batting average at, at first base? Oh, the challenge trade road is always a, a difficult one to go Schwaba. down. Schwaba. Uh, I mean, you're not getting away with that either. Wait, you're saying the person with Schwarber wouldn't give you Schwarber for Freddie Freeman? I'm saying the person with Freeman wouldn't even bother trying to make yeah. that move. Austin Riley? That might be pretty fair. I might take Riley. I mean, the, the question is, you know, I need homers. <laughs> I, I I do think Austin Riley... I think Austin Riley could will hit more homers than, than Freddie Freeman going forward. 
Okay, but then every other category still matters, right? Freddie Freeman's going to be a great run producer. Probably going to yeah, be yeah. among the league leaders I'm not in that region. That, that Freeman will have a lower overall value, but like if you if you were really focused on homers, I could see making that sort of deal. Uh, who's another player? Uh, and this question was looking for an ace. I mean, it, it, it's more about timing, I guess. Are we going to look at the beginning of this season as the last peak of Freddie Freeman's value? Not that he's in massive decline, but are we going to put him in the the Jose Abreu range in Is he going to return to where he was at the beginning of his career when he's like 318 homer hitter? Yeah. Again, very good player. A guy that people are excited to have on their teams, but if you can trade him for a player that's worth more than that, it's an opportunity to do it before people say, yeah, okay, we're all going to lower our expectations together. Because the power expectations from the projection system sit between 14 and 18 home runs the rest of the season. Zips is the most optimistic Bat X kind of splitting the difference at 16. And that's with a 296 average, a 380 OBP, and as good accounting stats as you're probably going to find projected for almost anybody. About 120 combined runs in RBIs. That's that's fantastic in those categories. Yeah, I wonder I wonder how much they include uh pull percentage and opposite field fly ball percentage and stuff like that in terms of projecting power. Because even his short his shortened season pace, he played all 60 games. In 2020, he hit 13 home runs that year, which tracks to the 30-plus home runs that he hit a season ago and the 38 that he hit back in the year of the rabbit ball. So this is a significant decline in in-game power for Freeman, even though there's plenty of things to still like. Yeah, I'm surprised the projections are all still so high. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough one for me. I think he will end with... Well, the over-under is 20. What do you think? <sighs> I would take the under, but I think it's a barely. And it helps yeah. that I'm staring at four sets of projections that all say under. Four? He's got five homers. Plus the five in the bank. I thought you said I think you yeah, meant 20 for the rest yeah, of the season. No, no, yeah. 20 for the season. Over. Well, then you then you hold on to him because you need power, and that's that's like a 30-homer pace. Is it fair value-wise if you're going to the pitching side, though, the way Andrew is, to take Wheeler or Carlos Rodon back? Because those names in my mind just immediately felt light as one for one trades. I would want a little something more back if I were giving Freeman in those deals. Well, I think one of the reasons that you take uh, aces lower or you take pitchers lower than hitters is because of health. And so once you're in season uh, and you're demonstrating health, um, I think that the, the pitcher hitter sort of math changes a little bit. So you're talking about, uh, if you knew that Rodon and Wheeler are going to be healthy for the season, you would take them in the late first round, right where you took Freddie Freeman. If you knew. You know a little bit more now than you did at the beginning of the season about their health. I don't disagree with that. Like, There's something about someone being healthy in June that makes me think he's made it this far. But pitchers break all the time. They break in yeah. the middle of the season. They break late in the year. Like, I... It's the guarantee on the box in Tommy Boy. Rodon's stuff is, is lower now in the last four starts than it was in his first four starts. Right. I think current health in high injury risk pitchers makes us think that they are safer than they actually are. In the offseason, all we can think about is the, the downside risk. Oh, if Rodon blows out in spring training or in his first couple starts... Ah, oh, my team's going to be ruined. And then we get to June and people are like, he's number five in, in the earn value calculator. So he's the best. I should trade at a second round bat for him. And it's like, no, you shouldn't. He was a great value where he was drafted. You should not buy high on the very scary arm injury history, elevated injury risk profile now. I think it, it is the guarantee on the box in Tommy Boy. That's exactly what it is. It is a false sense of security. I'm going to ask, ask, ask my boy Jeff Zimmerman to check into this. This seems like just up his alley. What, what, let's formulate the question. Is a pitcher that has made it healthy to June 1 less likely to be injured going forward than a pitcher on March 1st? I mean, so all you're looking for is some sort of point in the season where... The, the hypothesis is something along the lines of 
He's fully stretched out. He's gone max effort for a certain period of time, and it's a sign he's that he's going to be, to be fine. Going forward. I would I would say there is. I'd be stunned if there's anything that says that pitchers become safer after X date in a season. I'd I'd be stunned by that. It'd be amazing I mean, to is, learn. There that. is one data point that suggests exactly the opposite, which is that Russell Carlton found that every pitch a pitcher throws makes them worse. <laughs> well, I guess if I've tried to think about it from a really a basic sports science perspective, isn't every pitch just going to take a bunch of fibers and big little micro tears in them, right? Like you're, you're deteriorating every single time you that's, perform I mean, that's, the activity. That was the piece was sort from, of From a physical about, yeah. perspective, you're just taking a little bit. It's like taking a chisel just chiseling chisel 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 and i guess but there there is the, there is the whole like um the the acute i talk about acute to chronic in terms of uh, of how people think about uh, wear and tear and the idea is that you build up chronic ability so you build up a sort of uh day-to-day ability like if you want to run 26 miles at once you have to be able to run 10 miles whenever you want Yep. Right. And you do a bunch of 10 and five and 13 and, and four. And you're like, you, you vary and you, and you get that, you get that baseline up so that like anytime you wanted to, you could just go out there and run 13 and have no problem. And then your acute game day stress is I'm gonna go run 26. Right. (laughs) So I don't know. Every game pitch may be stressful in the way you're talking about. So maybe this is, uh, a useless segue but in terms of like long toss and you know arm care and the training they do not every throw they do is bad for them is that a useful distinction i don't know but it may, it may have something to do with stressful throws versus non uh in terms of maybe there's guys who are you know have that bigger separation between their max below and their sitting below and they're better able to manage their stress Right, but then I I don't think they're any more or less likely to get hurt based on, on the timing 1st. on the calendar. Like <laughs> yeah. they, they're just better at arm care and strengthening and doing the things they need to do to keep their arm healthy in general. And plus, I mean, this also are we talking about arm injuries only? Because I, I feel like the an oblique or a hamstring or you know an ankle or all the other stuff that can, that a can back go. injury like that is that same category or is that kind of different? Than what you're really looking for because this this almost seems like as as you're putting it out there it's like you get your arm loose in game situations over a fixed period of time like there's some like loose is kind of a funny word because it whatever it, it just just Warm. run with it if you can yeah you get warmed up you get your arm to this comfortable level because you ramped up in spring training and off season you got through that and you got through the cold months of the season and you pushed yourself up to that max level of hitches with that max velo and you got everything running at the highest possible level. And because you got there, then you're on the plateau, then you're safe. Right. But it's that it's that buildup where you break down. That's that's sort of the suggestion here is it that you could be you get hurt on the way. But I I think you can just get hurt at any time. And it's like just once that, you get the car on the freeway, <laughs> it's it's usually OK. You're just as likely to get into a wreck as he, I mean, still same same problems. Uh, wreck is not the right. No, no, we're talking about like, will the car stop working? I've definitely had cars. <laughs> I've definitely had car. I had this car. I had this car that uh, once I got it to seventy five, it stopped making the noise. More stress on the car makes it seem more likely to me that you would break it. So if, if I'm driving twenty miles an hour around the neighborhood, sorry if you're behind me. If I'm driving the speed limit around the neighborhood stop and go traffic and something clanging around and then i get on the freeway and i'm gunning it whatever that's, that's clanging that's around is to me is more that's likely to saying. like break I had off a car who made noise until i got to 75 the engine got louder and you couldn't hear it anymore i <laughs> that was it. i got pulled over and they gave me a ticket and i said i'm sorry sir kansas is very long and boring <laughs> and my car was making a noise i had to go 75 to make it stop making the noise, I still got the ticket. You still got the ticket. Yeah, that, that went about as well as the time <laughs> I wanted to use the cosine error for uh, getting out of a speeding ticket. What's that? 
Oh, I, I was Googling speeding ticket defenses when I was probably 19 years old. And my dad just looked at me and goes, you're not walking into court and using geometry to try and get out of your speeding <laughs> ticket. Like, just go pay the fine. Oh, you were going to say you got me at the wrong angle. And so then yeah. because of- <laughs> I was going to try and prove to a judge that the angle at which I was radared actually made it impossible for the radar to be completely accurate. Can you imagine you're a judge and there's a room full of people and you've got to just burn through these as quickly as possible. And some smart mouth kid walks in and tries to present the cosine error defense to get out of a speeding ticket. And there's no chance that would have worked. I would have got the extra burn from the judge before he or she hit the gavel. Found you in contempt and thrown you in jail. Yeah. That's hilarious. How dumb was I back then? I'm not as dumb now, but my goodness, why would that work? So, uh, yeah, the uh, the Kansas is boring defense. I'm sure when you said that to someone who's probably lived in Kansas their entire life, I'm sure that was really well received. Yeah, yeah. no, he did not smile. No, yeah, I, can, I can't imagine. <laughs> can't imagine you would smile in that situation. Uh, a couple more real quick questions. Hoagie on Twitter, because it is almost lunchtime. Uh, are there any indications of why Ranger Suarez is struggling so far this season? Well, it's not that the ballpark is is piling on. The ballpark should be helping right now. But uh, w- what do you see when you look at Ranger Suarez? Because I entered the season as a skeptic, not that he was good, but just that there was any reason to draft him ahead of like the, I think it was John Means who got hurt, Jordan Montgomery... Hinjin Ryu, who also got hurt. There are a bunch of similarly skilled players in my eyes that were going like 40 to 50 picks later. And that just led me to bail completely on Ranger. And I I don't get a victory lap. I, I don't think this makes sense to me either because I thought the K rate would be a little higher than it's been to this point. And the walk rate's gone the wrong direction as well. So is there something in the underlying numbers with the stuff breaking down that's causing him to struggle this much? Yeah, I mean, he was never a guy that had uh, a good stuff metric, um, and this year it's even lower. So it was like 95 last year, um, and he looked very much like an average uh, pitcher in a bad ballpark situation. This year, the stuff is 87. He has he has good command, um, but uh, in terms of uh, you know his four seamer uh, has less. Uh, two inches less ride than it did last year and is a half tick slower. Uh, his uh, his sinker has more drop, uh, but less uh, horizontal movement. Um, and uh, his changeup uh, is still decent, but, you know, his slider, which was good uh, last year, uh, has left him. And uh, he... Now throws, he used to throw an 84 mile an hour slider. Now he throws an 82 mile an hour slider. It has less drop than it used to and less side to side movement than it used to. It is a worse pitch than it was last year. 84 miles an hour is a really interesting thing. If you want a really simple way to look at breaking balls, remember this number, 85. Every breaking ball over 85 miles an hour is good no matter the shape. Almost every single one. And uh, if you look at Ranger Suarez, 84 and a half last year, that means that half of his breaking balls were over 84 and a half. That means half his breaking balls were pretty good. And you don't even have to look at the shape. Uh, now they're 82. They're just not as good. Look at Thor. In his good starts, he's averaged 85 miles an hour on the slider. And his bad starts, he has not. He's averaged 82. So uh, breaking ball velocity is a hugely important thing, and 85 is the threshold that you can sort of, it's a one number thing you can remember. Remember that, not the cosine angle defense, because (laughs) one of those things will help you in life. The other will definitely, (laughs) definitely get you in more trouble. One more question to get to before we go. This is about Logan Gilbert. This came from DM on Mm. Twitter. Uh, DM's looking for a deep dive when you're feeling better. And I think you are feeling better. You seem to be mostly yourself today. Uh, the question, or I guess the tweet was, his performances really don't align with model grades or even his called strike and whiff rate or his chase rates. I'm perplexed about who he really is. And those results have been 
very good. A 222 ERA, a 106 whip, 76 Ks in 77 innings. I am not surprised at all to see that the Sierra is sitting at 371. And it's kind of funny because Gilbert, to me, wasn't as bad as that 468 ERA last year would have led us to believe. And I don't think he's as good as a 222 right now would lead us to believe. I think Sierra is kind of pointing me in the same direction as the projections are for the rest of the season. I think that's probably a better reflection of what he's likely to do barring a change where he maybe starts missing more bats. Like I think if he starts striking more guys out, then yeah, he can he can split the difference to the good side between what he's doing and what the projections say. But even as someone who really liked Gilbert coming into the season, I'm hesitant to expect more than a 375 ERA and a 120 whip the rest of the way. Yeah, I you know, I think that's I think that's what the model says. I mean, I'm looking at what he's done recently. What's funny is that he's kind of been a little bit all over the place, but this is where he settled in uh, in his last few appearances. He settled in as a guy with around 96 stuff plus, um, which for a starting pitcher is average, um, and a guy with uh, good commands. Commands. Um, uh, with good command. And uh, he's had a, basically 105 to 110 location plus uh, in his last seven to eight starts. That is what he was supposed to be coming up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Um, and uh, I think a guy with those numbers is better than league average um, and is, is a pretty good pitcher. Uh, so I believe basically in his walk rate where it is. I'm not sure that his projected home run rates have to go all uh, as far as they're saying. Uh, The projections say he's going to give up basically 1.2 homers per nine. He's giving up 0.6 per nine. Uh, I'll I'll say more sort of in between 0.8 per nine. Um, And I think if you give him basically a strikeout per inning, the good walk rate he's got and a 0.8 homer per nine going forward, you get like a 3.7 ERA. Yeah, I think if if that home run rate stays a little lower than the projections where you have it, then I think the 335, 340 ERA might be possible. That that becomes more in play. I wonder if the projections are hitting him with that higher home run rate because of his fly ball rates. He doesn't get a ton of outs on the ground. And also, I wonder how much the home run rate being higher in his big league debut compared to what it was at any level in the minor leagues, how much that plays into that projection coming out where it does too. 119 innings of major league home run rate is probably the number one driver of his uh, future home run rate. Yeah. So that that could be the one area. I, I guess I'm I'm slightly more optimistic about him beating his home run rate projection than I am about the K rate going way up based on what he's doing right now. And the one thing that really kind of Scares me a little looking at the heat map. Throws that four seamer a lot, fifty five percent of the time. It's true. It it's a pretty wide egg yolk on the heat map. It's I want a little more precision there, right? He's getting just a little too much of the the middle part of the plate with that pitch. I'd like to see him get the ball up a little more often. Could be uh, just a you know a very varying looks because if he throws it so often you don't want like if he really honed in on just like if he only threw the fastball high you know it might be it might be worse for him but um the uh, the good news i think is the new slider uh is excellent it is his best pitch by the model and um and it and it speaks to this fact it has a lot less movement than he, he used to have a sweeper slider and that had more movement, but he couldn't command it. This one has a uh, a slightly lower stuff number, 104, but a 112 location plus. So he's he's able to locate it better. And, uh, you know, relevant to our last conversation, it's an 87-mile-an-hour slider. So it's an 87-mile-an-hour slider he can locate better. He's got his second pitch. Now, the changeup has a 120 stuff plus and an 86 location plus. So he still can't command that changeup. That's why if you're yelling at him on TV to, to throw the changeup more, that's why he's not throwing it more. He can't locate it. So either the location is going to have to improve, improve on the changeup or the stuff is going to have to improve on the knuckle curve because he's still slightly more two-pitch 
two pitcher than I would like a two pitch pitcher than I'd like. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, that changeup. I'm pretty excited about that. If, if he can find a way to improve the location, maybe that's the key to getting the K rate up because then you get that pitch down that you can get guys to swing over. Mm-hmm. If you can keep it down consistently and make it the kind of pitch that people will actually chase. So really good player. Uh, not quite as good as it looks on the surface right now. And still, well, I'm just plenty. hoping that he hangs on to make my bold prediction, right? I said he'd be the best Mariners pitcher. And well, Robbie Ray's helping you out with that too. Yeah. Yeah. That was a little bit of a bet against Robbie Ray. Yeah. That's, that's not, I mean, it's not always where we want to go, but it's always part of the bold prediction is having another thing that you kind of think is going to happen also and having that come through and so far so good for you on that front uh, before we go quick reminder you can drop us an email rates and barrels at the athletic.com is the best way to email us you can leave questions under this video on youtube you can send us tweets he's at Eno saris i am at Derek van riper if you don't already have a subscription to the athletic you can get one for a dollar a month for the first six months at the athletic.com slash rates and barrels that's going to do it for this episode of rates and barrels we are back with you early next week Thanks for listening.